phase is locked and ready to fire, sir. Illogical. Hello and welcome back to Federation Radio with me, Floyd, your host, once again. Today we're going over the episode, uh, so shit, hang on, Metamorphosis it was, so Season 2, Episode 9, Metamorphosis. This is an episode that honestly isn't that impactful to the overall story, but for some reason I always remember it. Like I've said many times, I forgot all about this episode, but this one, for whatever reason, sticks in my mind really clearly. I always remember this one. Maybe it's because it's Severin Cochran, and he becomes semi-important later, or at least he becomes more of a named character that we learn more about later. Later, as in in later shows. Actually, I think in one of the movies as well. But anyway, it's besides the point, because this actor for Cochrane is not Cochrane in the future. It switches to another guy who I think does it so far throughout all these other appearances. I don't know if it's had more than two actors, but anyway. Anyway, so this episode starts on a shuttle. Those shuttles are apparently called Galileos. Now, I don't know if that's that particular shuttle's like name from the crew or whether it's a Galileo-type shuttle. I'm not actually sure, but I noticed it said Galileo and I thought I'd take note because we don't often actually get names for the shuttles. That'll be more of a thing like later on in especially Voyager. We get to know the shuttles a lot more because they're actually very important in that show. But uh, yeah, I thought it was interesting. We also don't get much of the shuttles just in general in the early series, so... It's interesting to um to see that. And these shuttles are like, they almost look like a box. They look like an old van if it was like silver or silverish white and just had like a strip part marked through the middle. Like it's got that old school look like a van that has two nacelles which are like metal cylinder engine things. Smaller versions of what's on the big Starship Enterprise. And it's just flying. And... We've got this woman in there who's just being absolutely rude. She's being obnoxious. She's talking about how she shouldn't have been taken away from the planet that she was on. That the only reason she had to get taken away was Starfleet's fault. Because Starfleet Medical should have given her a vaccination for this disease that she's gotten. That they've had to take her away from to cure her. So they have to take her to the ship to deal with her. And as she says, like, there's a war going on down there. Well, it's a war probably going to be starting soon. They need me down there. I am their diplomat. And here's Starfleet with their incompetence getting me pulled away and then delaying time. So, you know, she's being rude and she's having a go at McCoy. And Kirk is very politely and diplomatically smiling and looking away and pretending that, you know, it doesn't bother him. Doing the very professional, I am at work and can't tell you my real opinions face. <laughs> and then a few seconds later, we get something through the windshield. Now, I should mention in the shuttle, we have Kirk, Spock and McCoy. So once again... An away mission where you've brought all of your command crew. Kind of get it. Like McCoy and someone else should have been there. Probably again should have been a Spock and McCoy mission. Not a Kirk. But this is a TV show and they're going to bring the main three. Because they're the golden trio and everyone loves to see them together. Now. This weird looking like gas cloud or energy cloud shows up. I'm not sure how exactly to describe it. At first they try and get away from it. And then it starts moving towards them. And before you know it it's engulfed the shuttle. Now, they sort of get rocked around, they're not sure what's going on, and then we start the intro sequence. Now, I'm not 100% if they get knocked out in this scene, or whether they just get jumbled around, and then when they, you know, finish that, they're on this planet, or half a planet. It's weird. They wake up, basically. Here's what happens. That that happens, the intro plays, and then they're on a world. It's like a rocky world with a sky that's a bit orangey, and you've got... 
them coming out of their shuttle and looking around like how did we get here what is this and then nothing in the shuttle works like they try and start it back up they can't use the instruments they don't understand spock and kirk have a look through the back of the machine looking around at the shuttle like can we fix it and spock says interesting nothing is broken and yet nothing works captain i'm not really sure how to explain it now this of course leads to an instant like what is going on no one's sure what to do. Now, the woman starts freaking out. Now, I think her name's Hedford. I didn't actually take down her name. I, I probably should have, but throughout all my notes, I've just written her down as diplomat or rude woman or ill woman. So, she's like we mentioned, she's ill. Now, McCoy mentions to Kirk at this point, like, we need to get her to the ship soon, Captain, because she's going to start showing signs, and this could get very bad for her. And, you know, Kirk sort of says, like, we're trying. We are trying, and they then they're interrupted by a man yelling, who is Cochrane. Cochrane is on the planet. This man, Zevran Cochrane, who you will hear the name of a lot throughout Star Trek. No, not so much in early Trek, and not so much like early Next Generation, but more the later shows. Like, I think Voyager mentions him, they have a Cochrane day, and Deep Space Nine mentions him, and in Enterprise, there's a character, there's half the crew basically knew him when they were younger, so, you know, there's a lot of Cochrane stuff in the future. We're going to hear a lot of his name. But Xavier and Cochrane, just so you know, as I should mention, they discover this through the episode anyway. He was the first man to ever do a warp travel in this universe. He got the very first warp engines on Earth running, which later on we learn is the uh, limitation that the Vulcans have on contacting species. So they don't interfere with species that aren't at a certain level of development because they don't want to interrupt it or give them weapons before technology before they're ready. But warp drive is a point where, like, okay, they have warp drive. They're going to go to other star systems. This seems like a good point to make contact. So this is on, you know, Star Trek Earth, because I know it's different, and we've sort of mentioned this before. It's a bit weird. They had a World War Three, which was either a part of the eugenics war or was post-eugenics war, depending on who's telling the story and when. So there was big war, possibly two big wars across a very short span of time. Earth was in a bad place. Lots of people had died. The rebuilding was slow. Cochrane was messing around, one of the few people that still had access to like a decent level of technology. He was trying to make his theory of warp drive work. And he managed to make it work. Like we'll see later on, we actually get to see that scene of it working in a different episode or movie. I don't remember exactly where, but we get to see it working. And the moment it goes off, a Vulcan science ship picks up on it, and they land basically exactly where Cochrane lands. Well, basically where he lands to come and check out who just did that. And they make first contact, and it's the first contact between humans and aliens. So in this universe, he's a pretty big deal. The whole reason the Federation exists and humans aren't just on Earth is because of him. So meeting him here is pretty cool. Now they mention at this point, Zevran Cochrane died 150 years ago, or so they think. They do kind of talk between each other, and they mention, well, his body was never found. And when they talk to him, he says, well, I want it to die in space, that's all, I was tired. He mentions that he was a very old man, and he just wanted to die in space, which, you know what? That's pretty cool. I'd like to die in space. If I got the choice to die anywhere, I think that's a pretty cool place to die. Instead of in your bed or in a hospital or something, I'll take staring at the stars in space. That seems like a really nice place to die if you've got the choice. So, they go back to his house. They hang out with him for a while. They bring they bring uh, Miss Hedford with them because she's, at this point, getting ill. Like, as we get to the house, it's a little bit of a hike to the house. She's covered in sweat. Like, her face is all wet. And that's, as the doctor says, that's the first sign. She's got a fever. It's starting to kick in. It's a matter of hours, not days now. 
and she starts freaking out. Now, after a bit of a conversation, like, they look around, they find some equipment, and they call them antiques, and he sort of laughs and says, well, I guess I've been away a while. Maybe they are antiques, but to me, they were my instruments. And, you know, Spock sort of points out, like, these instruments do line up with about 150 years ago, so if he is Cochrane as he claims, everything seems to be in order, other than the fact that he is a young man and he's still alive. And at first, he's a bit weird about it. Uh, Spock... I was going to say... I was going to say something else then. Spock and McCoy, no, Kirk and McCoy, notice a gas cloud in the backyard, similar to the one that they were engulfed with at the start of the episode in the shuttle, but much smaller and on the planet. And it's a little, like, it looks like a yellow, I don't know how else to describe it other than, like, maybe jelly. And it almost looks like, you know, the classic, when a kid puts a sheet over his head, like that ghost shape. It's sort of that, but it's like a yellowy with red circles in it kind of energy field. I know it sounds weird, and believe me, it is actually really weird. It looks strange. Don't get me wrong, I actually really like it. I think it's cool. It's a very alien design, but it is strange. It appears, and then it disappears. Kirk and that basically at this point, they don't know what's going on. They're surprised to meet Cochrane, but they also want to leave. And they're like, no, you're lying or you're not telling us something. We saw it. There is something there. It's reading on our tricorder to be the same thing that originally brought us here. If you can communicate with it or know what it is, you need to tell us. And he sort of sighs and says, all right, but you're not going to like it. And he says, I already know why you're here. You're here because it brought you here to keep me company. And he sort of says, I am going very lonely. I've been here by myself a very long time with nothing but, as he calls it, the companion. And they ask how they communicate, and he says, it's not so much that they communicate. It's not verbal, and it's not telepathic. It's more it engulfs him when he clears his mind. But it does things. Like, it healed him. He says that when he landed, he was an 87-year-old man. It healed him up to, I don't know, I don't know how old this actor's meant to be or how old he is, but he looks, you know, maybe in his 30s. It healed him, made him young again, and apparently made him young again for 150 years. So it's basically given him immortality. But he's lonely. And he says that he told the companion the best he could. He conveyed that he was lonely and that he was going to die of loneliness if he didn't meet other people again. He needed to get out there, but he didn't know how. And the entity brought humans to him so he wouldn't die of loneliness because as later on when they end up being able to communicate with it they translate it basically says the man must live the man cannot be allowed to stop and it has a feminine voice so spock and mccoy kind of determine throughout the episode as well as uh well spock coy mccoy and kirk all sort of determine well it's feminine i think this is more because at first i think mccoy says it's like a little kid with his dog, which is sort of along the lines that I was thinking when it first went over his head, but no, no, Spock sort of points out, like, yeah, it's more than that. And they discover, like, yeah, when they find out it has a feminine voice, yeah, it's it's a feminine entity, and it doesn't want the man to expire, and it's taking care of him. Like, this is, this is love, or at least attraction. Which is interesting because not only is it alien, you know, it's not like some of the other aliens that are humanoid. It's a weird energy gaseous type being, but it does seem to have the ability to give him all that he needs. It gives him youth, health, a place to live, a planet to live on, all these things. It even brings him company. Like, it has abilities. It has the ability to essentially give him immortality. So... Throughout the episode, things keep getting worse. Like, Miss Hedford is, at first, just sweaty. After a little while, she sort of... 
when she hears this she actually collapses from shock because she's like that's just that's disgusting we're humans we're not animals you can't just hurt us like this and you know i get it she's basically just being told that she's going to be a captive for eternity to keep a man happy um, well to keep a man from dying of loneliness because an alien entity doesn't understand i don't know what, what would you call it i don't know if it's like barriers or whatever i don't know just it doesn't really respect you as an individual because it doesn't quite understand now at first they try and stop the entity by force they come up with an idea where spock is actually attacked because the entity overhears them thinking about leaving so the entity goes to the shuttle where spock is trying to repair it and shocks it also electrifying him a little bit but when he sees this he determines the entity must be made up of largely energy and he comes up with this little machine that he puts together from parts and bits and pieces and he says if we hit it with this it should shut down all the voltage in its body and kill it or at the very least stun it and allow us to leave so you know Cochrane isn't that into it he sort of gets a bit uppity because he's like well it kept me alive i've been here 150 years it's my as he calls it his companion it has been looking after him but he does eventually say, if you're going to do it with or without me, I would like to get back out there. So they do the plan, and it doesn't go well. At first, it seems to work. It, call, it gets called the Cochrane, and then it gets attacked by Swox machine. But all that does is turn it from a nice yellow with red bits to a deep, deep red. It gets much larger, and it moves into the room. And it almost kills Spock and Kirk. McCoy is like telling it, it you're killing them. What are you doing? Cochrane wakes up outside because he was knocked unconscious by the entity when all this started, when it first got attacked, I suppose to protect him. He wakes up and he hears McCoy saying, you're killing them, and he sort of just clears his mind and stands up and summons it back to him, which makes it leave them alone and come back. Now after that, McCoy actually says something that I liked. He says to Kirk, sometimes I think you're trained as a soldier and it makes you forget that you're also trained as a diplomat. Talk to it. Which is actually quite wise. You, you can't kill it, and maybe your first action shouldn't have been to try and kill it. You should have tried to communicate with it first. But, um, you know, that's what they do. He Kirk turns to Spock, and this is something that will happen a lot in the future. Not always with them, but like just in future in general through Starfleet. The universal transmitter is kind of a MacGuffin that they use a lot to communicate with everything. Apparently you can input it with binary and talk to machines. They make it... They do something with it so that you can talk to this gas entity and it, all of its thoughts will be transmitted through it. Somehow it always learns new languages, no matter how alien they are. Like, the universal transmitter is never really properly explained. The basics of it make sense, but the way it's used in a lot of these weird situations never makes sense to me. Maybe I just don't understand science deep enough, or maybe this truly is just a MacGuffin that they pull out whenever the hell they want to make something work. You know what? I don't care. It's fine. Star Trek has a lot of weird tech that doesn't really make sense. It makes sense in the universe. That's how they use it. So they communicate with it. And like I said, it has a feminine voice. Now, Cochrane, after their short conversation, because they try and explain to it that, like, this woman is dying, he, the entity says, I'm sorry, I can't help her. Which, by the way, is kind of a lie, but we'll get to that. It doesn't lie on purpose, but uh, we'll get to that. It sort of explains, like, I can't heal her. I do not want him to die. I... And it says, care for him. I need him to continue. He said he would cease to continue if he remained alone. Which, you know, he's going to die of loneliness. And now she has brought you here so that he can continue because she cares about him. And then she leaves. And Cochrane says afterwards, why did you program it to have a female voice? And Kirk says, we didn't. 
that is its voice. It is a feminine entity. And then he says a line that made me laugh because it's a line that you probably couldn't put on modern TV shows. Not because it's bad, but because there's a a certain line of thought that a lot of, let's say, very, very progressive people, they call themselves progressives anyway, now believe. And uh, because of that, this line that I'll tell you now, the idea of male and female are universal, made me laugh. Because these days you've got people that don't even want it. They call that a social structure, all sorts of things. So like these days there would have been a whole Twitter thing about that line being said on any show. I mean, I don't really care what those people have to say. They're Twitter people. Who, who cares? Twitter's largely scrapped. Well, it might be changing, but we'll see. I'm not here to talk about Twitter. But uh, yeah, that line made me laugh. And it's kind of an interesting concept anyway, because it's sort of true. Like most plants have a male and female. That's how they, you know, pollinate and spread. But they require like insects. Like All of life does kind of vaguely have a male and, and female side, but not all. And it's interesting that he said that as well. Because we know throughout Star Trek that like there are alien races that don't have gender at all. They are completely alien because they're basically evolved animals that don't have it. Like in real life, there are things like slugs and there are sorts of certain animals that can just breed or have children on its own without requiring a companion at all. It's just their biology. There's a lot of species like that and it's not unthinkable to think that somewhere out there one of those species might evolve in some way to be intelligent and become part of a federation so the idea that they always think that is a little interesting but i don't know maybe maybe it's true i just thought it was interesting now she also said something really interesting to Kerr. i don't remember of this conversation the next one but she says no it's later on because mccoy uh, kirk says you can't create life and she says no, creating life is for the maker of all things. Which is once again Star Trek kind of saying that there's a god. Sort of. Which I feel, again, like that line was forced in by the network back then. Because remember, once again, 1960s America. You have to be Christian or you're wrong. <laughs> That's just the attitude of the time. That's just how it was. We're not really going to judge it or talk about it too much. But that's how it was. But that's not how Roddenberry was. And it kind of made me interested in, like, the way Roddenberry sees the universe. Because it's fascinating. Because this episode, again... Because they end up... I'll say, before we go into Roddenberry thing... The way they resolve this is they communicate with her. And they basically explain to her how bad captivity is. And that if a human is held captive and doesn't have problems or things to overcome or accomplish... That they just cease to be. And, I mean, I'm, again, not fully on board with that. I don't think life has to be a challenge or has to be hard for it to be life. I think you can find enjoyment and contentment in just being happy. But I do agree, you can't be alone all the time. Like, I'm a loner, I'm pretty introverted, but even I'm not alone all the time. I talk to people semi-regularly, probably, you know, basically hermit level compared to your average human, but I still talk to people. I think I would truly go mad if I was truly, like, truly alone. No internet, no videos, no other human voices or any voices ever. No animals, just me in the wind. I think I would truly go mad. So, like, there is some truth to that. He would cease to be himself. The fact that he even is himself after 150 years is pretty amazing and is kind of a sign of that character's willpower. But, um, yeah, so they end up resolving that. 
they explain that to her and her solution is to actually fuse with Miss Hepburn which is interesting because fusing with her or becoming a part of her apparently it's voluntary she doesn't like possess her she goes in I think to talk to her to try and understand love because she's the only other female there and they end up fusing now we don't get to see this we just see her come out of the house and she's healthy she's no longer sick she's standing there and she's talking almost like the entity and she sort of says we are one now which is really weird but like apparently their fusing makes her young makes her healthy and her virus is gone and the reason that's so interesting is because not long before this there was actually on her bedside she overheard the fact that Cochrane mentioned like why did you give it a female voice and they sort of say oh because it cares about you it is its voice we didn't give it to it it's a feminine creature and we think it loves you and he gets annoyed and he walks out of the room because he's a little bit like it's not human they can't love me he probably thought of it as more of like a dog it was his companion it wasn't his you know romantic partner the way it was thinking and he's a little bit weirded out by it and he leaves and the woman who was sick in the bed Miss Hepford is sort of you know she's rolling her head around a bit because she's in a bit of pain but she says and she's very upset and it is a bit sad like she thinks she's about to die she thinks she's hours from death and she says I've had a good career and I'm good at my work but I've never been loved by anyone and I've never loved anyone and then she sort of almost laughs when she says I'm going to die here never having loved anyone and he's going to never die and live here for eternity running from love <laughs> which you know I do kind of like that that flip like the writers had a bit of fun with that they could have made it really tropey and it kind of is tropey but they made it different enough that it was actually interesting so that was kind of cool so like the entity after all that fuses with her and the entity then says something really interesting that apparently this was a choice they both made because the entity cared about him the entity can't leave here even in her body or they'll cease to be but she doesn't really want to leave either she's done with her career she just wants to be happy the entity makes her happy it makes her healthy and she kind of likes him i think they're being fused together kind of fuses their emotions it's a little bit weird and it's not fully explained but basically she gives up her eternal life to live a human lifespan with him here and he decides he's okay with that instead of leaving like all when she joins their communicator work so while this conversation's happening kirk pulls out his communicator and i didn't mention earlier it's, it's mostly because it's pointless we do get some scenes on the enterprise not many but we get scotty who's now in charge looking for the shuttle he knows something's gone wrong he detects the energy sensor of where the shuttle went missing and he's scanning all the systems in the area looking for them doing a very thorough search that as uhura says could take a long time but he doesn't care he's gonna find his captain now so that's why he's in the area when the communicator goes off he immediately responds the ship's on its way about 57 minutes and they'll be there Cochrane tells them i'm gonna stay she's gonna stay too and ask Kirk to not mention this to anyone now I would be fascinated what the captain's log or the report from these three looked like how they explained oh we were on a shuttle then we ended up on this world the diplomat died and that's the end like what do they write in their report to not explain what happened who who questions them that would be a very interesting report that I would have liked to have seen more of but this show is really big on not telling you the aftermath yet which probably because early star trek was very episodic but they're starting to get into the more bigger world stuff is happening like i noticed they called it 
Starfleet in this episode. I think I, I didn't mention it but in the last episode. I'm pretty sure that Mud mentioned Starfleet as well, or Kirk mentioned Starfleet in the Mud episode. So I don't know which one's the first reference to it, or if I just missed the first somewhere, but like they're now saying Starfleet. They're no longer Earth Space Force. They're no longer Space Command or Earth Ship. They are now the Federation ship. Federation ship that is a part of Starfleet. Like the actual Star Trek universe is starting to come into shape, and they're going to keep using that in the future. Like now we have the Federation and Starfleet being used differently. Before it was kind of weird about how it all worked and they weren't sure now it feels like yeah they've worked it out in the background they know how this works and when they craft the stories they do it from that angle and i like that because going forward that is how it is the federation is a sort of overarching almost un type thing the united nations but it's more like united planets well actually that's what it is it's a federation of united planets so that's what they are it's a federation they have starfleet as like the military branch that all the different planets give their troops, give their people to, like their best scientists and soldiers and engineers, and they do a lot of things, exploring, engineering, discovering things, both in labs through research and through actually going to planets and meeting people. They do everything. They're basically the useful side of the Federation. The Federation has a lot of, like, diplomats and people like Miss Hepford that work directly for the Federation and, like, broker peace and make first contact, but usually they do it from Federation, uh, from Starfleet ships. So they've now really given that, it's not quite a military, but it sort of is, but it sort of has to be out of necessity of being in space. You have to have armed forces and abilities with you if you're traveling, even with peaceful intent, just because you're alone and you're so far from everything when you get there. But yeah, anyway, I thought that was interesting. So that's the episode Metamorphosis, which is the first time we see Zephyrin Cochran and the last time we see this Zephyrin Cochran, I think. Actually, now I'm getting weird images in my mind of like a flashback of this episode with this Severin Cochrane. But anyway, it doesn't matter. I don't know whether I'm imagining that or not. Next time, we'll be going over the episode uh, Tower of Babel, I think it's called, or the Babel Accord or something like that. But anyway, we will get to that next time. Bye for now.